My view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that there's no one truth about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. Here I come. I'm here. <laughs> All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody today, and I'm glad you could be here to worship with us today. Um, if I <clears throat> haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name's Rollin, and I'm the uh, lead pastor here. And uh, It's been good to uh, go through a series together such as this. Um, if you're here with us for the first time, what we've been doing is um, going through a series called Explore God, where we've been uh, considering uh, the tough questions um, of life and uh, really how to approach God in the midst of the tough questions that exist around us. And so I would be remiss to say um, this day, uh, again, it, it is a tough question. Should we or should we not root for Tom Brady uh, today <laughs> during the Super Bowl? I'm, I am, you know, I was going to root for him if this was going to be his last. Um, but then he was in an interview and he said, I'm playing till 45. And I was like, Tom, you can, uh, you can sit this one out. So anyway, go Rams. So I'm just kidding, Joe. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. So anyway, beyond that tough question, what we've been doing is we've been going through uh, several questions um, the past several weeks. Um, number one, uh, is there purpose in this life? And uh, yes, the answer is yes to that. The purpose is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Number two, um, <clears throat> is there in fact a God? Is there evidence for a God? And we uh, answered that question by looking at both natural and special revelation and said that yes, there is in fact evidence for God that exists in the world around us and in the person of Jesus Christ. And last week we tackled the tough one, um, talking about the purpose of pain and suffering. Um, why does God in fact allow pain and suffering? And so if you missed any of those, please do know that uh, if you want to go back and look at them or uh, the notes or listen to them, they're on the website. But uh, more importantly, if you want to talk through them, uh, we're here to do that with you. And we'd love to uh, get to know you and uh, talk through these issues with you. Today, what we're doing is we're actually top, uh, tackling the topic, as you saw in the video, is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? Now, for those of you who know me, I think that um, I, I need to just always remind people that though I'm uh, preaching the gospel up here, I did not grow up in the church. Um, I did not grow up in the church, and I did not grow up um, having a foundation in the Bible. I didn't have a foundation in the church. I didn't have a foundation in the things of God. Um, as a matter of fact, I was uh, in a household that you might have called relativistic. And when we say relativistic, uh, we had this sort of philosophy where, you know, things that are truth claims might be true for you, but not necessarily for me, right? Everybody has their own way of doing things. Um, or you might have called my family pluralistic, uh, which meant that, you know, we were generally, like most people, uh, feeling like you could find your own way to God, right? You, there are many different paths to God, and um, if there was, in fact, a God, that you could discover which way you wanted to go and travel on that one, and it's all good, okay? When I became a Christian, um, the, obviously, the thought of these things began to change, and the reason that it began to change was because of an encounter with Jesus himself. And then also, as I encountered him, beginning to read some of the things that he said about himself, that he said about the world around me, that he said about what it means to have reconciliation and relationship with the God who made me, loved me, and had purpose for my life. And so um, ultimately, it became about a trust 
um, in him and his words, but I had to contend with the fact that uh, many times people had the idea, and I myself had the idea, that Christianity was narrow in its perspective. Narrow in its perspective. And today we're going to talk about that philosophically, but then um, next week we're going to talk about uh, Jesus' claims about who he said he is. Um, is Jesus, in fact, God? Is there reason to believe that Jesus is, in fact, God? Um, and then finally, in the week after that, we'll talk about the um, fact that if we're getting many of these evidences or reasons for understanding understanding that Jesus is God from the Bible. Is the Bible, in fact, reliable as a source? Is it, in, uh, in fact, reliable as a text source? So today, as we go into the topic of um, is Christianity um, too narrow, I wanted to uh, just start by saying, not, not just sharing my story, but uh, empathizing with people whenever they think about religion in general. Uh, whenever people think about religion in uh, general, a lot of times uh, people think about it uh, with certain types of characteristics. They think about things like legalism. Uh, they think about things like judgments, right? Whenever you think about a, a religious person, you think, you know, hey, they're judging me, or you want to push back on somebody um, having a judgment towards you. Or in my case, I had many people who were surrounding me who were, called themselves Christians, but uh, they lived in what I like to call the worst incarnation of hypocrisy, okay, of hypocrisy. I, they were literally preaching to me during the week and partying with me and were people I had to rescue in the partying days on the weekends. And I was like, I don't understand this. Stop bothering me. I'm trying to sleep in on Sunday morning. So with that in mind, um, I had to get over the fact that um, Christianity had claims and I had to learn not to throw out the metaphorical baby with the bathwater not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, that regardless of what I saw around me represented by people, that Jesus was different than the people that I saw. Can everybody say yes to that? Okay, Jesus was in fact different than the people that I saw. And ultimately, when I was considering the claims of Jesus, I was never coming to the people. Um, I was coming to the person that they worshiped, right? I wasn't coming to Jesus um, um, solely because of the example that I saw set for me by the people, but I was coming to Jesus because of the example that Jesus set himself, right? And so because of that, I could understand that Christianity wasn't in fact near but it was actually illuminating the truth that God had in and of himself. And what I began to understand is that uh, what I was balking against in my uh, discovery of God was not necessarily Jesus. I was balking against religion. I was balking against dead religion as um, I saw it. And I was turned off by it because, um, as we'll hear summarized again and again throughout today's message, religion is ultimately humanity's attempt to reach God, Right? Um, religion is people um, coming up with all types of rules and traditions and all types of um, um, subsets by which they're trying to reach God because God, as we said before, has set eternity in the hearts of men, but they don't know what he's done from beginning to end. And so people are trying to somehow be reconnected with the God who created them, but religion puts on a set of rules that oftentimes ends up being a stumbling block for those who weren't initiated in it, right? Um, however, Christianity, which is what Jesus has introduce uh, the ways of God. Christianity is God's attempt to reach humanity. Okay, And it's, it's a different perspective, right? Where I'm not trying to work my way to God. In Jesus, God has worked his way towards me. 
and that's the grace of God. That is the good news of God. That's the gospel of God. And it's one that the New Testament writers were not unfamiliar with, even when they were ministering in the Roman Empire. They were, you know, it wasn't just, they, let, let me tell you, just to alleviate your fears, the Apostle Paul, who wrote three-fourths of the New Testament letters, and the other writers of the New Testament, they did not grow up in the Bible Belt. Okay, They did not grow up in the Bible Belt, so this was not what they were passing on just as the understood or you know, perceived um, religion. But instead, they went into the Roman Empire that was full of all types of uh, what we call Greek mythology now in the Hellenized world, right? All types of foreign religion, all types of other types of beliefs and philosophies. And today, what we're doing is we're looking at one of those instances with um, the Apostle Paul when he went to a, pl- a city known as Athens. And we know that in... Uh, Uh, ancient um, history that Athens was a center of intellectual thought, philosophy, and a clashing of cultures, a clashing of ideas, and they were trying to figure out in the midst of Athens, you know, how to actually ascribe to the one living God in Jesus Christ, Um, but was Christianity that Paul was purporting too narrow for the world that was collected there in that place. So if you would look on the screen with me, if you don't have a Bible, or if you have a Bible, you can look in yours um, in Athens. Acts chapter 17 today. We're going to start in verse um, verse 16, answering the question, is Christianity too narrow? It said this, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And an idol, uh, biblically defined as anything that is Um, separate or other than the one living true God, right? So there is the one true God and then idols or something that you worship, whether it be in their case, stone statues or ideologies, you mean that are other than the living one true God. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, Paul was a Jew himself, and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Always gives me encouragement in my preaching, right? (laughs) (laughs) Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It makes you think that the social media wasn't started in Silicon Valley, but in Athens, right? Just presenting all the new ideas all the time. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He said, unapologetically, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined at a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
and they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what Paul's saying very specifically is he's going into this pluralistic, this relativistic community, much as we live in today, right? If you live in Chicago, you're surrounded by all types of faiths, all types of philosophies, all types of beliefs, even if people claim not to have a belief themselves. They say, I have no belief. Well, that ultimately is a belief, right? I believe that there's nothing, you know? People, uh, some people have the audacity to say I'm an atheist, which means that in all of human knowledge, I have the vast sum of it all within myself, and there can be no other, right? Or some people are humble enough to say I'm agnostic, right? It's like there may be a God, but I just don't know. But what do you do in a community and a culture just like this one? Well, Paul found that he had an understanding because he had met the living God where he said, listen, you are religious in many ways. You are many in our case or in our context, many times people call themselves spiritual, right? They're spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm, 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 I'm sort of like attuned to the things of God, but I don't want to commit to anything. And Paul had to say, listen, I respect the fact that in some way, somehow you're responding to that which God put inside of you to be religious, but I'm telling you, you can't stop there. You have got to know that there is a God who came and made himself known. There is a God who walked amongst us. There is a God who lived sinlessly, who died sacrificially and by power was raised from the dead victoriously to show, in fact, that not only is he God, God, but had the, he's the only way to God. Paul proclaimed that without apology. He said, literally, I'm telling you, you need to know this because as he ended his speech to the Athenians, he said that times of ignorance God previously overlooked. And ignorance isn't stupidity. Ignorance is, in fact, um, um, I just did not know. I was not privy to this information before. But he said the times of God, ignorance, God gave uh, humanity a period of time where he said that's okay. But at some point, it's got to change. At some point, he says, I'm coming and I'm making myself known to you in such a way because he's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the world in righteousness and he's going to judge it by this Jesus who he sent, who he showed to be the living God who came to be the savior of all humanity. What Paul did is he demonstrated how to maintain faith in Jesus among a people who are not comfortable with exclusive claims about God. And Paul asked the Athenians questions, complimented their search, and then when asked, proclaimed the truth with gentleness and respect, right? He proclaimed it. He didn't shrink back, but he proclaimed the truth with gentleness and respect. And when Paul preached about Jesus and the resurrection, he began to contrast Christianity with other religions. Most religions can be described, as I said, as humanity's attempt to reach God, but Christianity is God's attempt to reach humanity. The, <clears throat> through the person of Jesus, God's extending grace to everyone. 
His gift is broad, available to anyone, anyone who will receive it. Now, this answers the question for us in even just understanding how Paul was directing himself or uh, speaking to the Athenians, is Christianity too narrow? I like how Timothy Keller said it. Whenever we're talking about truth claims, we've got to understand that all claims are exclusive. When you make any claim whatsoever, it's exclusive. Does everybody realize that? If you say there is no truth, that in and of itself is an exclusive claim. What you're saying is I've cornered the market on truth and I've come to understand that there is no truth. That is an exclusive claim in and of itself. Whereas on the, to the contrary, when somebody says, no, there is only one truth, that also is exclusive. But you cannot say, and it's, it's a hard discussion to have, especially in this world that clings to the idea of tolerance so much, right? The idea of tolerance. You, you say, well, I'm being bigoted or I'm being unreasoning if I say that the claim that I'm making is actually true. Well, if you make any other claim, it's also saying that that's true in and of itself. So you've got to choose, right? One way or another, you're making a claim of exclusivity. But the powerful thing about it is, is that not only are all claims exclusive, but in the gospel, as we saw Paul talking about, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. It's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. What does he mean by that? He means literally that, yes, whatever you say, something's going to be, whatever you claim is truth, it's going to be an exclusive claim. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying this exclusive claim is actually welcoming the world into that exclusivity. Whereas other exclusive claims are trying to hold people out, and when you sort of try to prop up different forms of religion, they're saying basically, hey, listen, do these things, otherwise you're not part of us. Be born into this family, or you're not part of us. Be born in this area of the world, or you have no access to the righteousness or the good news that there is in the God that you're looking for. But God says it's completely different. He made the world and everyone in it. And he says, I want relationship and reconciliation with the whole world, and I provided it through my son. I'm, yes, making exclusive claims, but I'm providing an inclusive road so that everyone can participate in it if they choose to. If they choose to. How do we know this? Well, let's look at some of God's exclusive claims. First of all, if you um, read anything that Jesus said, you need to know. John 14, 6, he said this very specifically. Jesus said in all of his ministry, not, he wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a wise man. But he said, I'm the son of man, which was a sign or a term of divinity. He basically said, I am God in the flesh, God incarnate. And he said that, listen, all of you are looking to be reconciled with the God who made heaven and earth. But here's the thing. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. And when Jesus said no one, he means no one, right? We waste words, Jesus doesn't. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Does that sound like a narrow claim? Does that sound like an exclusive claim? The answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. If we're honest, the answer is yes. But the reason that he said it is of utmost importance. The reason that he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody could come to the Father except through me, is because of not only who he was, but what he did. 
who he is, and what he did. The cross and its necessity are ultimately what every Christian and every person need to have deeply embedded within them. The cross and its necessity. Because what we know about God is that he's holy. What we know about God is that he's good. What we know about God is that he's loving and righteous and pure. And if we're going to have any type of relationship with him, we've got to be like him. He said, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? If you're married in here, at some point, you had to bend to the other person's will, right? Oh, come on, married people, say amen to that, okay? So like, it wasn't just like, I'm going to be who I'm going to be, and you're going to do what you do, and then we're going to figure this out. No, it's like, listen, you're going to ultimately have to learn who that person is and learn to bend towards them. The only problem with that is, is that God's the only perfect one. He's the only completely good one. He's immutable, unchangeable, and he said, I, the Lord, do not change. And if you're going to have relationship with me, there's going to be a bending on your part, but it's going to be for your good. It's going to be a bending on your part, but it's going to be your, for your good. And he says, listen, the problem is, is that in and of yourself, you cannot bend to satisfy my righteousness. You cannot bend enough to be good enough to have relationship with God. It is like oil and water that do not mix. You can put it in a jar together, but they will ultimately be two different suspensions. And they will stay separate because they do not mix in and of their nature, their character, their components, right? Same with God. And what the cross of Jesus Christ did is it ultimately enabled us to be reconciled with a pure, righteous, and a holy God in a way that we couldn't ourselves. It allowed us to be reconciled with him in a way that we couldn't ourselves. Galatians. Galatians 2, 20 and 21, it was the Apostle Paul, same writer, um, um, the, the same person who was speaking to the Athenians. He said it this way in verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20 and 21. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ for all of my great learning, for all of my great speaking, for all of my missionary journeys. He said, ultimately, where's my confidence? My confidence is in the fact that I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, right standing with God, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He was saying, if God could be apprehended, if reconciliation or relationship with God could be understood or realized only through our good behavior, then ultimately what in the world did Christ Jesus die for? The reason that Christ died on the cross was because none of us were perfect. None of us were good enough. None of us did it perfectly on our own. And that should be a sigh of relief for everyone in here. That the only perfect one was Jesus. The only perfect one was the one who was up on that cross. And on that cross, he paid a price. On the cross, he took the wrath of God on himself. And he said, listen, because he died, you have access to reconciliation with a perfect and a holy God. But without him, guess what? None of us. None of us are going to be justified before a holy God by our own good behavior. 
Which also means if we come to him, we don't have to try to keep ourselves in him by our good behavior. It's Jesus' good news by the cross from beginning to end. Beginning to end. The cross is necessary because it's the only way I can have relationship with a holy and a pure God. Exclusive, yes, but it's because of what he's done. Hebrews 9.22 said it very specifically this way. He said, indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood even. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Because the life of every individual is in the blood, and ultimately the wages or what we earn for our rebellion against God is death. An eternity separated from him in hell. But he says, I didn't want you to go to hell. I didn't want anybody to be separated from me. So what I did is I went to that cross to bring you back to myself. But it necessitates the cross. And I always talk to people uh, on the bus. Yes, I'm that person. (laughs) I talk to people on the train. When I'm taking flights, I say, listen, man, you got nowhere to go. (laughs) Might as well be friends, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I'm always talking to people, and as I'm sharing the good news of Jesus, I have to present it this way. I'm like, listen, man, ultimately somebody's going to pay the price. When we die and face God in judgment, either you are going to face it or the good news is is that someone named Jesus already took the punishment for you. The good news is, is that he's offering it to you. The good news is that you can return and receive it. But without it, brother or sometimes sister, you're on your own, right? You're on your own and Jesus invites us into it. Those are his exclusive claims, but we also see very clearly in the scripture his inclusive heart, right? It's the most inclusive, exclusive claims that we have. How do we know that he's inclusive? Many times, at least for myself prior to being a Christian, I thought of God as this vengeful, wrathful being, right? That was just out to get me. Anybody ever feel that way? I was almost like always looking over my shoulder like, oh man, I blew it again. It's like like looking for lightning to strike me or something. That was my perspective of God, right? But God has an inclusive heart where he's like, no, 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 I came not to condemn, but to save. I came to give life, not to take it. Ezekiel, even in the, yes, Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he said things this way. He said in Ezekiel 33, 11, he, got, he was prophesying through a prophet named Ezekiel. And he said, say to them, meaning proclaim to the people. I want them, yes, to know my exclusive claims, but I want them to know my heart, Right? Anybody ever have to discipline your kids before and all they're thinking about is, you know, the timeout or the spanking that they're going to get and you're like, listen, you're, you're, you're just responding in this moment, you know what I mean? But know my heart to you. I just want you to do what's right, right? Stop hitting your brother or sister, right? Stop throwing the food off the table. That, sorry, that was last night. Listen, so it's like, listen, it's like, I'm telling you, it's like, remember my heart towards you. And God in the same way is saying, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. I have no pleasure, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's his heart. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's what he was crying out to the people 
in the midst of his judgments. Do you know that a lot of times we're reading the scripture, and even in Old Testament judgments, you see from, it's almost like a, a, a YouTube reel, you're going from screen to scene to scene, right? But they, even the judgments that came from God were after hundreds of years of appeal, where he's saying, turn back. Turn back. I want you to live. I want you to have life. I want you to have a good marriage. I want you to be blessed in the land. I want you to have sanity of mind and heart. God's saying, come back and live. And in Timothy, Paul was once again writing to a young disciple he had. And he said it in the New Testament, explaining it very clearly through Jesus this way. God's inclusive heart. He says, this, starting in verse 6. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings. Yes, 2019, America. <laughs> for presidents. <laughs> That's right. For governments. Yes, he wants all people to be saved, right? For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires what? All people. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, um, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So you, say, you see he's laid down very exclusive claims, but both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he's explaining his heart. I want it to be inclusive. I want all men, all women to be saved. And come to a knowledge of the truth. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, where you were born, or what you've done up to this point. He says you can turn today. You can come into his life today. Through that ever necessary cross of Jesus. That cleanses. And when he was stretched out on the cross, his arms were open wide to you. And to me. And to the world that he died to save. Exclusive claims with an inclusive heart. The most inclusive exclusivity you'll ever come across. The problem with all of that, though, is though we might agree with it conceptually, <coughs> we still have an emotional response to faith. And if I was to look back on my own uh, upbringing or my own thinking, it wasn't that I didn't hear the gospel before. It wasn't that people didn't share it with me, and even in a way that made sense. But ultimately, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Hello. Anybody else would admit that in here? Just wanted to be, it wasn't that I couldn't recognize the truth, right? It wasn't that I couldn't admit it. It wasn't that if I was intellectually honest with myself, there wasn't more than enough evidence to show me that basically the gospel and Jesus and the way to him were actually true. It's ultimately that I wanted control of my own life and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And what happens is that it produced in me and in others an emotional response to faith. It wasn't that Christianity was too narrow. It was just ultimately it was too narrow for my pleasures. <laughs> and people don't care, ignore the issue, or neglect, or cast it off as something that's irrelevant. 
as long as possible to live how they want to live. There's a philosopher named Aldous Huxley. Has anybody ever heard of him? Okay. <laughs> he said it this way. I, I think this encapsulates my position back in the day and many people's position. He said, I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, that it had none, assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. You can digest that one for a moment. He was saying, basically, I was throwing off the exclusive and the truth claims of Christ because I wanted to live the way I wanted to live. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. It wasn't that I couldn't see it. It's that... Ultimately, it was hampering, cramping my style. But in the midst of this, God still makes an appeal. In the midst of this pride, in the midst of this arrogance, God still makes an appeal to us. And we find it in one of the most recognizable scriptures in the Bible. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Yes, it wasn't just Tim Tebow's eyeliner. It was also (laughs) something specific. God said about his exclusive heart, but his inclusive claims, he says, in the midst of this, God so loved the world. Not just some people, but he loved everybody, right? He loved the person like myself who was arrogant and pushing him off. He loved the person who was born in the church. He loved the person who was born in another country who had no knowledge of him, but he's still making himself known through the preaching of the gospel to them that they might return to him. It doesn't matter where you were born, how you were born, what you came up with, he's making an appeal. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, inclusive, right? That whoever, that means you, that means me, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Not because God's trying to send them to hell, but they're already guilty by their actions. We condemn ourselves by our actions. And he's like, I'm trying to bring you out of that condemnation through the cross of Christ, but if you choose to remain in it, you stand condemned already. He says, condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. I remember that. I was like a cockroach, right? At the club. Turn on the lights like we scatter, right? It's like sometimes because of who you were dancing with. But here's the thing. It's like, listen, you scatter. It's like whoever... 
People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does the wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does that mean? I was humble enough when I came into the light to say, basically, I can't do it on my own. I can't be good enough on my own. Not only can I not work my way to God, matter of fact, I'm not going to be good enough to have a good marriage. I'm not going to say amen to that. Okay, I'm not going to be good enough to be a good parent. I'm not going to be good enough to even be a good worker or, you know, citizen even. Why? Because I know what's in me. And ultimately, unless there's somebody who comes and makes a home in me, sets me free, has me born again, enables me to be a new creation, a new man from the inside out, and empowers me by his spirit to do something different, I'm doomed to failure. But I'm happy to come into the light through the cross of Christ. Why? Because I'm willing to admit that anything good that's coming out of me, it's not because of me, it's because of him. And it's because I no longer live, but it's him living in me and through me. And if you see anything good, it's because you're seeing a reflection of him. And anything bad, I'll take responsibility for, and I say, I'm in process. I'm being sanctified. But the good news is that the necessity of that cross is covering me while I'm in process. From beginning to end, it's good news to me. From beginning to end, it's good news to you. And he said, my exclusive claims are true, but my inclusive heart is beckoning you, calling you into that grace, calling you into that life. It is not too narrow. It's actually the life of God being offered to you, and not just you in here, but the whole world. So is Christianity too narrow? The answer is no. It's narrow in the sense that it's true. And that there's one truth, but it's inclusive because it's for everyone. It's for everyone who would believe. It's for you, your friend, your family member, your neighbor, co-worker, your friends. It's for everybody. The most inclusive, exclusive truth you'll ever hear. So what do we do with that? We ask, first of all, the question, we ask ourselves the question, do our lifestyles prompt others to ask why we live the way we do? If not, what do we need to change? Ask yourself the question, are you satisfied with practicing religion and striving to reach God? Right? If you're in here today, you might not have a relationship with Jesus, but you feel like you've been striving to reach God, a seeker, right? But that can be exhausting, <laughs> quite exhausting. And what he's offering instead is an ability to accept God's free gift and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Will you accept that? Is what he's asking. For us as a church, I pray that our church can be a community of people who are so winsome that the world cannot ignore it. I pray that we'd be bombarded with questions about why we do the things that we do or, to the contrary, why we don't do certain things that we shouldn't do. That they ask why we go to the places that we go and hang out with the people that we do. And then I hope that we have the faith, the courage, the gentleness, and the respect to share our faith boldly and humbly with people. 
because it's exclusive and also inclusive. I want you to imagine if we were able to do that even this week. Would the world accuse us uh, of being narrow-minded? I, I certainly hope not. Not if we're presenting things this way. I hope people would say instead that we're the most welcoming, loving, and inclusive people that they know. The bottom line is this, that God provided a way for everyone to have peace, forgiveness, and eternal life. This is profoundly inclusive, not exclusive. Following Jesus is different from every other faith on earth in that he sacrificed to get us rather than us sacrificing to get him. Most religions boil down to humanity trying to reach God. But Christianity is God coming to reach humanity. And so as we go back into worship, I'd like everyone to consider where you are today. Where are you? Don't care if you grew up in the church or like myself, we're far from it. There's an appeal being made to you today. Is Christianity too narrow? The answer is no. God's trying to include you. He's trying to give you the best news this world has ever had come across its path. As we go back into worship, we ask you to have a moment of prayer, meet with God in whatever way you need to, and then we'll give you a chance to respond at the end. Okay? Worship team, come on up.